by more conservative uh, former members that say it's private, free market. I generally try to remind them, you know, if you're going to have a free market and you believe in the free market, you have to have at least three competitors. And in most places in greater Minnesota, uh, there's one. Hello, this is the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Our guests often include CIOs, municipal utility managers, or other people with extensive technical expertise. Well, this week, Chris interviews a leader in economic development advocacy. Dan Dorman is a business owner and the executive director of the Greater Minnesota Partnership. He's also served as a member of the state legislature. Dan's unique perspective gives him insight into the needs of Minnesota businesses, and at the top of that list is better connectivity. Working as an elected official at the state level, Dan also saw the influence of big cable and telecom lobbyists. Chris and Dan discuss the Greater Minnesota Partnership and the critical need for better connectivity in parts of the state beyond the urban center. They address the challenge that lawmakers face, And Dan offers suggestions for improving connectivity, including creating an environment where municipalities are allowed to step in and serve local communities. The Community Broadband Bits podcast is a weekly advertisement-free service from ILSR. Please consider contributing to our efforts. Go to ILSR.org and click on the orange Donate button. Now here are Chris and Dan Dorman from the Greater Minnesota Partnership. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell. Today I'm speaking with Dan Dorman, the Executive Director of the Greater Minnesota Partnership. He's a small business owner and a former representative in the Minnesota House. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Chris. Happy to be here. The Greater Minnesota Partnership, uh, can you tell me a little bit about what that is? I sure can. We are a uh, an advocacy or lobbyist group that advocates on behalf of Greater Minnesota, specifically dealing with economic development issues. It's not that we don't care about education or things like that. That's just not our focus. Our focus is on economic development issues. How do we grow tax base? How do we create jobs? How do we get uh, better quality of life in Greater Minnesota? Now, when you say Greater Minnesota, I, as a Minnesotan, think all of Minnesota is pretty great. But for people who aren't as familiar with uh, the way we label things around here, uh, what's Greater Minnesota? Uh, Anything outside of the Twin City metropolitan area. In the Twin City metropolitan area, to be very precise, is defined as the seven-county metro area, even though there's a broader definition that includes some of the areas around it. But we are everything outside of that seven-county metro area. Great. And, and you're also comprised of, of all kinds of different entities, right? I mean, you've got businesses, economic development groups, uh, local governments. Um, you know, what else is there? Uh, local chambers. There's some nonprofits, higher ed institutions. So we, are, we have a variety of membership that really, uh, and economic development touches them all. It's important to all of them. That's why we've got such a broad base. Plus, the, uh, the other bonus to that or, or feature is that it gives us a little more uh, pizzazz when we're uh, before the legislature. If we're just uh, a city group or a group of chambers or even businesses, it doesn't have the same panache as, as say, that whole group put together. So we want to attract a wide, wide variety of, of members, and we think that will give us the best uh, strength in St. Paul. 
And something that seems to be uniting all of these different groups, uh, something that I believe uh, the listening tours uh, across the state has shown, is that just about everyone is concerned with Internet access. How much of a priority is that for you? Last year it was our number one priority, and it will be right up there again this year. Uh, last year, as you referenced, we went on a uh, about an eight-city swing throughout greater Minnesota, and we brought together as many people as we could find, members, non-members, didn't matter. We invited anybody that had interest in economic development in those communities to come share with us their experiences. And, and the, the question we followed up with a survey was, what is the number one thing we could work on, in your view, to improve the economic vitality of greater Minnesota? The results of that survey... Again, it wasn't scientific, I get that, but it was pretty uh, representational of the entire state. Uh, Number one uh, concern was broadband, better broadband, increased broadband. And in general, the the problem that we face here in Minnesota, if you break down, if you compare the metropolitan area to greater Minnesota or the non-metropolitan area, about only about 40% of the people in greater Minnesota have access to the same high-quality broadband speeds that those in the metropolitan area enjoy. It's a problem, and it isn't, it isn't just about Netflix and Facebook and everything else that we all enjoy, but it's about commerce. It's about economic development. It's about growing our communities, having vital, vital healthy communities, uh, and the Internet is, is so important to that. Yeah, if anyone wants to trivialize Netflix, they should talk to a real estate agent that's trying to sell a house that doesn't have good access to Netflix. Um, yeah, yeah. Lots of luck there. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, that's it's one of those things that it's somewhat paradoxical to me that we may take uh, the NFL very seriously as a driver of the economy, but we don't take video games and entertainment seriously. You know, that's an important part of our lives and the, the quality of our lives. You want millennials in particular to live in your community, wherever that is. Uh, you think it's important now, broadband, uh, give it another 10 years. I mean, it's not not a fad. It's not going away. And the communities that successfully uh, uh, put in uh, fiber uh, and and get real uh, competitive, uh, not just on the speeds availability but on pricing, um, they're going to be successful. Those that don't will be left behind. There's just no question. The data is clear. One of the things that's just happened is an increase in the definition for the term broadband. And I suspect that means that that a much greater area in greater Minnesota now will actually be classified as not having access to any broadband. Um, What I'm curious about is what the state can do since uh, the the partnership really focuses on the state. Uh, What can the state do to try and improve that so, so everyone has really good access? last year to establish a new broadband fund in Minnesota. We were able to get uh, $20 million in that fund. Uh, Governor Dayton this week announced uh, that he would support $30 million this year. We were a little disappointed in that number, wanted it to be somewhat larger, but the legislative session has just begun, and it's a long way between now and the middle of May when it ends. Uh, so that's an important piece. That funding piece, uh, the, the role the government plays is an important piece in there. But I think what would really have the best long-term impact, and we will eventually get there, which is to enable cities to have, make it easier for cities to uh, do a municipal service or a community-based broadband, whether it's a public-private partnership or whether you can't get any local players to want to invest and a city has to do it all. I think that's the key to unlocking a whole lot of uh, uh, development in this area because it's the only way I know of to really bring true competition to 
the broadband market in Minnesota, particularly in greater Minnesota. Are there, is there any particular models that, that you find really inspiring in, in greater Minnesota? Well, I'll, I'll give you two. I'll give you Wyndham, Minnesota, which is a uh, small community in the southwestern part of the state. In fact, I'm calling from you, uh, calling from a, a, another small town about 20 miles away from Wyndham, but they have a very robust and great uh, community system that other cities could emulate. And it grew out of a, a local provider that did not want to invest, said they couldn't build the model. You know, we've all heard that story. Turns out the model is there, as they've proven. Uh, but it didn't come on the consumer side. It wasn't. It wasn't the drive uh, saying, "Hey, I need to send uh, you know email or something like that." It really came from industrial users telling the city that, you know what, don't quit worrying about this one industry. Worry about all of us, and we need better uh, broadband. And so that's what drove it. So locally, close to home, I'd say Wyndham, Minnesota, on a more national level. Uh, and I'm sure most people listening to this are familiar with the work that was done in uh, Chattanooga. Outstanding. Uh, so it can it, it can be done. It is successful. But I think the other thing that that I want to also mention is just the threat of municipal service or multiple cities doing it will force the cable industry in particular to start investing. And it may not be all uh, community owned. It, it may be it may be combinations. You may start to see investments by others. Uh, but I think that's the the key to getting that investment. The key to bringing about competition is is frankly competition. Well, I, I've loved the Wyndham model as well. Ever since I learned about the uh, the impacts on the Toro facility, on the local healthcare, uh, the lower prices. I mean, you know, it, it's. I think it's a wonderful story. Uh, we did it yeah. in a uh, we did interview them in a podcast previously. I encourage people to to go back and listen to that. Uh, and we also talked last year with uh, Senator Schmidt, uh, Representative Simonson, and uh, Dana McKenzie with the state on um, on the the loan program that that I think would not have happened without the, the Greater Minnesota Partnership. so No, it wouldn't. I mean, to, to toot our own horn, uh, you know, and you, met, you referenced earlier, I spent eight years in the legislature, and the entire eight years when I was there, uh, you know, I, I only heard one side of the story, one side of the equation. It was the, the Quest and the Comcast of the world and the, the big cable operators that came and said, you know, this is a private market thing. Don't worry about it. It's going to happen. Don't worry about how we deliver it. Just worry about the speeds we deliver. And really, until last year, and I'm not saying that there hadn't been some people come down and talk about it, but there hadn't been a, a a large effort to actually lobby this issue, to go over, pound on the doors, set the hearings up, draft legislation. There's a whole lot of things that have to go into it. And so what we did last year was, now I'll say the final mile, we took all this great work that had been done by people like the, the Blandon Institute or Blandon Foundation and others, uh, talking about the importance and the need and how it could be done, turned that into actual legislation. And then uh, it was quite the fight, as you know. Uh, I, I recall one time you, you talked about Representative Simonson. He had the uh, Peace in the Valley meeting, which is you get both sides in the room, you try to come up with some compromise. And in this one, I, I participated in it, but I wasn't optimistic because, frankly, we had some uh, particularly large cable industry that was very happy with the status quo. So if you're happy with the status quo, man, you're never going to want to come, you know, change that. And so we had that meeting, but it just it really showed the level of the opposition. There was, uh, I'll say, three folks wearing white hats in the room and uh, everybody else with a black hat on. And, and uh, there were about 14 
Uh, so about 14 to three is what it was. But uh, at the end of the day, we 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 uh, were able to uh, advance the cause and set up that fund and get some good language. Yes, I think the language was was quite good. Um, and I'm, I have to ask you, I, I definitely wanted to talk about your time in the legislature. But um, had you been familiar with what Wyndham was doing before you left the legislature? Not a clue. Because I've been in meetings in the legislature in the, the right around the time. It was about 2006 and uh, 2007. So it was probably actually right after you had left. Right after and, I left. Yeah. Right. And I, and I just remember that Quests at that time, now CenturyLink, their lobbyists were telling everyone how terrible it was. And it was just, you know, it was, it was an awful system and they were struggling and this and that. And uh, there's still a lot of people that believe that. I'm, I'm sure you've run into them on a regular Except basis. Of course, the users of the system that love it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so there's some other people that don't like it, but it's not those that use and, and benefit from uh, that system. But that's a classic example of what we need to do besides the, you know, you would have thought, Chris, that going into last session, there was a couple different proposals, a couple different bills, one of them loosely called the Modernization Bill, which, you know, frankly didn't go as far as I wanted it to go in the area of community broadband, but it would have made it easier for this to happen. And so in Minnesota, if a city says, you know what, cable, the cable guys are telling me they can't do this, so we're going to go ahead and plow forward, uh, you have to have a referendum, and you have to have a 60% majority, not even just a simple majority, which seems a little bit un-American. You know, if you think about it, to, to get this on the ballot to begin with, it takes a, a positive vote for the elected officials. So the city council, uh, if, we, if we use a city model for a second, the city council has to vote in the majority to put it on the ballot, and then it has to pass not only by 50%, by 60%. It's, it's actually 65%. 65, even worse. Right, yes. Yeah. Even worse, thanks for that correction. Uh, I, I believe in Wyndham, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it, it took three referendums. And, and why did it? Because the first two, the incumbent provider said, hey, don't, don't, you don't need to do this. We're, we're going to do it. It's right around the corner. Boy, we're, we're drawing the plans up. And by the way, if you do this, you might lose six jobs. And so I understand it. The initial reaction of people in, in the community were, well, boy, we better not do this. We don't want to lose those six jobs. And these guys are saying they're going to do it. Well, lo and behold, they didn't do it. And I think by the time that third referendum came up, it passed by pretty big numbers. Well, I think the way I tend to think about it is, as you know from being in elected office, you can find 10 to 20 percent of people that will oppose anything. And anything. so if you need a 35 percent to, to shoot something down, that just means you have a company that has almost unlimited spending, just needs to go out and find an extra 15, 20 percent of people. That's, that's no way to decide whether or not to invest in an infrastructure. Frankly, I wanted to get rid of it because in my view of the world, I love, you know, I represent a lot of cities. And uh, those folks work awful hard to get elected. They're pretty darn close to their residents, right? Somebody's mad about something, they, they're generally going to call the mayor or the city councilor long before they think about, well, maybe I should call my state rep or my senator. Uh, so they're, they're close. They're on the firing line. They've got to take that vote in the city council to move forward on things like this. Personally, I think that should be good enough. If people in the city don't like what they're doing, they'll vote them out. But okay, if we've got to go through... The, the extra step of of something you have to go through a referendum it, it should at least be a 50 percent uh, referendum the 60 65 percent is is as, as you pointed out it's just a way for the anti folks to to make it easier for them to kill and really not then a representation of the will of the people 
there's an American flag around. I wrap myself in it right now as we're talking about this issue. <laughs> right? Well, and it's the only place in the United States where you need a supermajority for this kind of an issue. Everything else is a simple majority uh, where it's uh, required. And it does, it does speak to the power, though, of the other side and how good of a job they have done lobbying on the other side of this because we couldn't even get a hearing on that bill last year. So it was easier to get the fund created, a $20 million fund set up, than it was just to go from 65 to 50%. I mean, that's, that's crazy if you think about it. Well, and, and I'll just point out that a city can actually vote to condemn the existing utility by a majority vote, uh, but it would take a supermajority for them to build their own, which is somewhat mis, misplaced uh, priorities, I think. But don't forget, though, the, the cable... I'm an anti-cable guy, but you know maybe I am. But at least I, I understand who they are. Heck, I own a tire store. I'd like nothing better than to have an unregulated monopoly. I wish everybody in Albert Lee, my hometown, could only come to me and buy tires. First thing I could tell you, I'd do raise my prices. Yes, <laughs> that's and that's I think I'd what history shows. Service, but <laughs> we wouldn't be maybe as pushed to do it when we're when we have to compete in the free market. But I guarantee, if I had an unregulated monopoly. I'm sure I would be entitled to a little more margin. Right. Well, I want to dig into something that's actually even more complicated, which is um, there's a fear that among many of us that in the legislature we're going to see a debate that the that the state should only put money only where there is exactly zero service providers today right. rather than areas where people have, um, you know, maybe just very slow DSL that isn't very good. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious where the partnership comes in because you represent people from both groups. Right. Our, 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 our preference last year when the, that debate came up was to uh, my experience both in the, while I was in the legislature and after I've left if you send a pot of money to one of the agencies, whether it's the Department of Transportation or, in this case, the Department of Employment and Economic Development, and you say, here's a pot of money, here's the general parameters. So we looked at it from an economic development standpoint. We thought, personally thought the best models were blended. Under, you, know, you had a community of underserved and a community of unserved around it. We thought those were pretty good models, right? But we really did not want to tie the hands of, of Dana McKenzie, the broadband office. We thought they would do a very good job. Uh, uh, the cable industry and others were paranoid about that, and they wanted to uh, I shouldn't say paranoid, but they were, uh, for a variety of reasons, some apparent, some not, they wanted to send it only to people that had no service. And it sounds like a compelling argument. I mean, how do you argue against all oh, these poor people who just have no service? Don't you care about them? And and that's interesting, but it, it's also cutting themselves out of it in that in that uh, uh, try to find peace in the valley meeting I referenced earlier. I asked one of the cable lobbyists, I said, you know, you guys are working pretty darn hard to cut yourself out of a grant fund that you could you could pick up 50% of a of an upgrade. Why would you want to do that? I mean, if somebody uh, if somebody wanted to pass a uh, $20 million tire fund and somebody the state was going to pay for 50% of tires, I'd be all over it. So I said, why why would you guys want to do that? And you got the old oh we're fine, don't worry about us. It's just those poor uh, people that have no service. Well. I got to tell you, if I put simply my tire guy hat on, I am motivated by profit and shareholder return. Now, the shareholders of my family, I want to do it honorably. I want to make money. I want to pay people well and do good things for the community. But I operate that business to make money, and it is about uh, return on investment. It's no different than that the cable companies. And so when they said, gee, don't worry about us, it's about them, that's just code for 
we really don't want to upgrade our system. Stay the heck out of this. Well, there's actually a, a fiscal responsibility element to this as well, which is that I think the state has an interest in if it's giving out money to do it on a one-time basis and to have networks built that can sustain themselves without any ongoing subsidy. And if the cable guys have their way, what happens is you build these networks in, in only in the most unsustainable regions, and they may not be able to continue on. Whereas if you use the word which you used, which is blended, if you blend together a couple of different areas, then you have the best chance at financial sustainability, which is the goal. Right. And, and, and if it's not successful, they can come back and say, see, we told you this was a bad idea. Let us take care of it. Right, right. There's there's definitely that. Although I think they'd rather keep the monopoly than just be right in in rhetoric. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It is about keeping that unregulated monopoly. And you know, to, to some of my more conservative uh, former members that say it's private free market, I generally try to remind them, you know, if you're going to have a free market and you believe in the free market, you have to have at least three competitors. And in most places in Greater Minnesota, uh, there's one. And and you know you don't you don't really compete against yourself. That is a problem. So for those that are free market people, they they ought to be there with us on this issue to bring about competition. Competition is a wonderful thing. It can do and and bring about some great things. But uh, if you don't have competition and you don't have regulation, you've got a problem. I also remind some of the conservative Republicans that this is a if you think about it, Chris. In some ways, this is a government created problem. We deregulated an industry without making sure there was robust competition in all areas. We asked for this problem. Now we need to fix it. Right. I I would certainly agree with that reading of it. Um, I think, you know, it's one of those things where uh, when they were working on this bill in 1996, they totally underestimated the way in which the, the federal regulators and the future Congresses would be fooled by the arguments of those very powerful industries to maintain their monopolies. And I, and, 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 and I don't think people really understood what, what was going to happen. I mean, Internet, Schminternet at that time, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, people didn't see what was going to happen. They didn't see the, you know, we have a, one of our new members is the, uh, the MCEE. They came to us and they said, man, we want to help you. And their big deal was broadband. Their uh, uh, company is a nonprofit, but they're interested in energy efficiency. How do we make homes, businesses more energy efficient? And they're saying, you know, the technology that's coming, right? We have to be prepared for the future. Uh, the technology that's coming is going to be more and more dependent on robust broadband. If you don't have it, you're going to, again, be a second-class community relative to the communities that do have it. This is rapidly becoming a not something that's nice, but something that's necessary. And I think within 10 years it will be a necessity or your community will start to die. And I know that sounds really draconian and like, a, like boy, no, it isn't going to be that way. But it isn't just these guys trying to get energy efficiency. Go talk to your doctor and, and uh, find out how you're going to get uh, medical service. Uh, it's likely that, be, you know, within not too often or not too many years, we're going to be talking to somebody on our iPad. Over, it probably won't be over Skype because it isn't safe enough, but over, over some secure connection, that is where your initial consultation will occur. So it's great. You can have the, all the high-speed broadband you want at that, at that medical facility, but if you're, uh, like in my case, six miles away, and until recently the only thing I could get was a crappy DSL service that rarely got over uh, a, a, a megabit, download speed, uh, that wasn't going to cut it. 
And so that's going to be a problem. Education delivery. Uh, there's just so many things. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, but uh, you, I don't think you can understand or that a lot of people yet understand how important this is going to be. We've seen some of the work done by, uh, who was the Canadian group uh, that Blandon's hired? SNG, the uh, Strategic Network Group with Michael strategic Curry. Group, exactly. Uh, they're talking about, I've seen some work they did for the city of Fergus Falls that said, you know, in the coming years and coming decades that uh, 25% of all new jobs are going to be dependent on broadband. You don't have it, you're not going to compete. And as a former EDA professional in the city of Albert Lee, you have a town of about 20,000 in southern Minnesota, I can tell you that things that came up that said, tell us about your broadband, the answer wouldn't, wouldn't be, well, gee, if you come and you give us about a year and a half or so, we can probably have some fiber out somewhere near you. <laughs> you would not make that first round. And so it is rapidly becoming as important as, do you have electricity and running water? Uh, it, it, we're not too far from it being as important as that. They will go to the next community that already has it done. That's why Wyndham upgraded theirs to keep total, but also make them competitive for that next that next business that comes, particularly in you know, financial services, engineering. There's just so many things where this is uh, uh, critical. Well, the canals redrew the maps, the the highways redrew the maps, the railroads redrew the maps, and, and if I was in Vegas, I'd be betting that a fair number of maps will be redrawn uh, as a result of this. I think, you know, the idea of people praising Chattanooga around the, the world, um, you know, uh, just 10 years ago would have been a surprise to many people. Right. So, or, or, or our friends in uh, uh, Cedar Falls, Iowa, where President Obama was, uh, what, a week and a half, two weeks ago, to talk yep. about... Uh, uh, community broadband, absolutely. The communities that are uh, out ahead of this will be more successful than those that aren't, and they'll get left behind, and then no one will understand why this happened. What happened to us? Well, you know, we, 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 we need to be proactive here. We cannot we cannot sit back and wait. I mean, I, I can tell when uh, recently I was visiting with some of the governor's staff, and uh, I'm over cooling my heels waiting to get in the door, and out come some of the Comcast lobbyists. I don't know that we saw the same people, but I thought it was kind of interesting. And when we're in there in this meeting, and we, one of the issues we touched on was uh, broadband. And I started to hear that, well, yeah, but Dan, is this really important? Isn't wireless about to, about to take this over? And I thought, huh, sounds like the Comcast lobbyist. And, and the reality is, and here was my answer. I said, you know, I'm a small-town tire guy, but let me tell you what I do know. Uh, CenturyLink is running ads in the metropolitan area saying we're, we're spending hundreds of million dollars running fiber all over the place. The big cable operators in the metropolitan area are running fiber. And then there's this other company you may have heard of that's run some fiber called Google. Uh, <laughs> there's some pretty smart fellas. Um, if there was about to be this huge technological shift that was going to make fiber obsolete, I, I don't believe that those entities we just talked about would be running fiber. They would be ahead of that curve and stop. And so I think it's, I, I bet, Chris, if we went back a couple of generations when we are trying to get electricity to every house, we'd have heard the very similar arguments as, well, they really don't need actual electricity. Those lamps they've got are fine. Uh, what do they need that electricity for? It is, it, it is you're right. It is shocking just how similar the arguments are. In a number of cases, I think you could just replace a few words in entire magazine articles and still be spot on uh, yep. from 100 years ago. Yes, yeah. but let me let me uh, draw this to a close. It's been a it's been wonderful having you on. Uh, is there anything that you want to hit before we turn off the mic? No, I, I think that we've 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 covered it, and uh, the more I think we can do to encourage. 
uh, competition, whether it's whether it's a blended system of uh, public-private partnership or where that can't happen. Uh, I mean, I even talked to some, uh, I, I think, are very conservative Republicans that that get this. That they'll they'll say, "Boy, I really don't want to do it, but if that is the only way we can get competition, because most of them, once you talk to them, do get competition." Uh, are, are in favor of community broadband, and I think that's a good thing. We just need to, uh, you know, keep singing the praises of what's happening and what will happen if if we're not successful. Because, you know, uh, my fear is what's really going to happen in a community like Albert Lee or others that are similarly situated is that you've got a cable system that's fairly antiquated that, uh, you know, we'll let her operate for another five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years and then walk away, and then the community's going to be saying, what the heck just happened? And they'll be scrambling and behind the uh, behind the eight ball. Uh, I don't want to see that happen to Albert Lee, and I don't want to see it to happen to other communities either. It's we need to get to to, to start going. Uh, great start in Minnesota last year, but we scratched the surface and and uh, need to push forward faster. Excellent. Well, I'm glad the partnerships out there doing this work. Take care. We appreciate your help, and uh, if anybody has any ideas or suggestions, uh, send them our way. We'll do that. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at communitynets. Please take a few moments to donate to ILSR.org to help us continue this valuable service. You'll be glad you did. We want to thank Person for the song Blues Walk, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening. Have a great day.